Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation chapter 10. I want to do the whole chapter today. Revelation 10, verses 1 through 11. This passage concerns the angel and the little scroll, the angel being Jesus and the little scroll. Our context is this. In Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21, we took up the sixth trumpet, the last of the six trumpets, which, of course, is mainly judgment, judgment, judgment on the apostate Jews. And so now we have arrived at an interlude before we get to the seventh judgment. So starting with Revelation 10:1, we read this. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and that rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now this angel is indisputably Jesus. Jesus is often called an angel. In the Old Testament, he was called the angel of the Lord whenever he appeared. So we're going to talk about what Jesus is doing in this vision. First, let me point out that this is an interlude. Revelation 10 is part of a relatively long interlude between the 6th and the 7th trumpets. There was an interlude also between the 6th and 7th seals, if you recall. All the judgments of those first six seals were followed by a good thing, the sealing of the people of God. The 144,000 Christians who were sealed in chapter 7, they were sealed from the judgment coming down upon the land of Israel. So likewise, after these six trumpets, there's something good happened. Something good happening. And Bruce Gore says you can describe that something good as the mission of the church. The interlude between the sixth and seventh seals was about the sealing of the church, the protection of the church. And now after the sixth trumpet, we're going to talk about the mission of the church. I think that's a pretty good description. So who is this strong angel? As I said, this is Jesus. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, we can look at Revelation 1, 15 through 16 and see the description of Jesus is just like he is here. Namely, he's clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet was like pillars of fire. Well, we'll look at various places in the scriptures to show that divinity is being described. First of all, Jesus himself is described in Revelation 1, 15, 16 this way, and his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Well, there's feet as a fire burned in a furnace. If you'll think of fiery Bronze, if you will, fiery brass, his feet were burning, his feet were like fire, and his voice is the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun, his countenance was as the sun, in Revelation 1, 16, and in Revelation 10, 1, we see that his face was like the sun, so this is obviously Jesus, this, who is this angel. So he's described like Jesus himself in Revelation 1, 15 and 16. He's described like God himself on the throne in Ezekiel 1, 28, first part of the verse. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So the bow that's in the cloud in Ezekiel 1, 28 and Revelation 10, and the rainbow was upon his head. So there's the bow. A bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. In Revelation 10:1, we see that the strong angel was clothed with a cloud. So that strong angel is Jesus. His divinity, as in Ezekiel, it, God was described with the rainbow around, around him and the cloud around him. This description also in Revelation 10, verse 1, matches the description of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, 17, verse 2. And was transfigured before them, Jesus was, and his face did shine as the sun. Shine as the sun in 
Matthew 17, 2, Mount of Transfiguration, and in Revelation 10, verse 1, it says that his face was like the sun. All right, so now that we've established that this is Jesus, we move on to verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And now this little book that Jesus had in his hand, this open little book, two possible interpretations of that. One, some people say it's the book of Revelation itself. Well, maybe, but I think more likely it's the gospel, as Bruce Gore holds, because the new covenant is about to get launched. Remember, all this judgment has a purpose. Get rid of the old so that we can usher in the new. Get rid of the old apostate Israel so that we can usher in the new Israel, which is the church. Now, this, now Jesus placed his right foot on the sea. The sea is an easy symbol in Revelation because it stands for the Gentile nations, especially as contrasted with the land of Israel. So sea is Gentiles and land is Israel. And so I'm going to read you some Old Testament scriptures that actually contrast Gentile nations with the land of Israel using those metaphors, sea and land. Psalm 65, verses 5 through 8. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the land or the ends of the earth, but let's translate it as the ends of the land, and of them that are far off upon the sea, which stills the noise of the seas, the noise of the waves, and the tumult of the people. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts, well, that's the Gentiles. They are afraid at thy tokens. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening to rejoice. So the far off Gentiles, the uttermost parts, those are the Gentiles. They're making noise like the seas, the noise of the ways, the tumult of the people. Isaiah 5, 26, 30, And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar. Nations, of course, is Gentiles. There's the Gentiles continuing on in Isaiah chapter 5, And will hiss unto them from the end of the land, or the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly, and in that day they shall roar against them, against his people, like the roaring of the sea. So there you have nations from afar roaring like the roaring of the sea. So the Gentiles roaring like the sea. And if one look upon the land, behold, darkness and sorrow. That's Israel. They're sorrowful because the Gentiles have come upon them and judged them. Isaiah 17, 12, and 13. Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations. So there seas is the noise of the seas is is compared to the rushing of the Gentile nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters, like sea breakers rolling. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters. Again, nations are directly compared to the seas. But God shall rebuke them and they shall flee afar off. Isaiah 57:20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So the troubled Gentile nations, tossing, turning, foaming, casting up mire, casting up dirt. That's what the wicked are like, the Gentiles, the troubled sea. Jeremiah 6.23, they shall lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride upon horses and set in array as men for war against thee, O daughter of Zion. So these are the Gentile nations coming on Israel that roar like the sea. Revelation 17:15. He also said to me, that's Jesus, I think, said to John, The waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. That's the whore of Babylon. And she is riding upon the seas. I'll interpret that further when we get to Revelation 17. But just for right now, know that sea represents the Gentiles and the land 
represents the land of Israel. The land and the sea used together in the Old Testament shows the totality of all things terrestrial. If you think about it, if you say land and sea, that covers everything on the planet. Exodus 20, verse 4. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. So there's the earth and the waters under the earth, the subterranean seas, earth and waters. Heavens are thrown in there too. That that will that really shows the totality of everything that's on the planet. But everything that's on the surface of the planet is water and seas. All right, so we got land and sea, fundamental metaphors in the book of Revelation. Sea, Gentiles, land, Israel. We're going to have a sea beast, the Roman Empire, and a land beast, the Israeli beast, when we get to that part of the book later on. Now, the fact that Jesus' foot was one on land and one on sea shows the immense size of the angel. He had a loud voice. He was very big. That symbolism is obvious. Revelation 10, verse 3, And he, this is Jesus, cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, the fact that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Meredith Klein, the famous theologian, in his book, Images of the Spirit, page 101, describes this loud voice this way, quote, Characteristically loud, arrestingly loud, it is likened to the crescendo of ocean and storm, the rumbling roar of earthquake. It is the noise of war, the trumpeting of signal horns, and the din of battle. It is the thunder of the storm chariot of the warrior lord, coming in judgments that convulse creation and confound the kings of the nations. That kind of puts a punctuation mark, puts an exclamation point on a loud voice. A loud voice? Well, it's loud, all right. And when a lion roars, that's another loud voice. And it's also another identification of the angel with Jesus because Jesus is called the Lion of Judah on the throne. At Revelation 5, 5 is one of the eldest saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book. That's Jesus, the Lion of Judah. A lion has a loud voice just like this loud voice that the angel shouted with, that Jesus shouted with. And in fact, his loud voice is compared with seven peals of thunder. The seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now remember, seven is a simple symbol. In the book of Revelation, it stands for perfection, divine perfection. Peals of thunder are symbolized judgment. So we've got divine perfect judgment is coming. And he cried out with a loud voice that sounded like thunder. And so basically he's saying, judgment's coming, boys. It's over. David Chilton puts his voice this way. Well, he's talking about the seven voices. We'll talk about the seven voices, where that phrase comes from. The seven peals of thunder are said by David Chilton to be, quote, the heavenly antiphony in which the angelic chorus answers the declarations of the sovereign Lord. Well, I don't know about that, but I don't know whether there's antiphony going up there. God speaking and the Jesus speaking back at him. Could be. I guess if you're making a play out of it, it would be more dramatic that way. But why seven peals of thunder having a voice? That seems like a strange metaphor. If you if you read in Psalm chapter 29, verses 3 through 9, we see seven voices of the Lord, or the voice of the Lord mentioned seven times. And we see those voices mentioned together with thunder. Verse 3, Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. That's voice number one. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Voice number two. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty, voice number three. The voice of the Lord breaketh the, breaks the cedars, voice number four. Yea, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, and he maketh them also to skip like a calf, 
Lebanon and Syria like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. That's voice number five. Voice number six coming up. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. It's number six, and here's number seven. The voice of the Lord makes the hinds to calve. I think a hind is a deer. And discovers the forest, and in his temple doth every one speak of his glory. So here we have in this passage of Psalms seven voices mentioned seven times. This is David Chilton's idea that this is where John is alluding to here, the seven peals of thunder. I wouldn't be surprised. The seven peals of thunder, which are the voice of the Lord. So seven being the number of divine perfection, the seven peals of thunder have spoken. Thunder stands for judgment. So the seven chalice judgments, which are coming soon, are going to be quite bodacious, quite bodaciously awful. Revelation 10.4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Now, what John sealed up is a mystery. And that's why it, the reason it's a mystery is because it was sealed up. An astonishing amount, an astounding amount of scholarly ink has been spilled trying to figure out what God sealed up. Well, it wasn't meant for us to know, so why do we try to figure it out? So I'm not going to try to figure it out. God meant for only John to hear it. But he also meant to let the seven churches know that there were some things he was keeping to himself. Now, this verse is a great corrective for a preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is not completely preterist. There are some things about the new covenant, excuse me, the second coming of Christ in it at the end of the book. The new covenant stretches from the first advent to the second advent. And if you only emphasize the first advent, you leave out some stuff that's important about the second advent. Now, certain hyper-preterists, heretical preterists, do that. They shoehorn everything in to 8070, and they forget that, hey, there's still some stuff coming happening at the very end of time. So you can be hyper-futurists like the dispensationalists, and you can be hyper-preterists like the heretical preterists. But if you do that, you're going to miss the full, rich meaning of the book of Revelation. As David Chilton said, Quote, the fall of Jerusalem did not constitute the second coming of Christ, the end of the world and the final resurrection. There's more to come. So we've been talking about the fall of Jerusalem here in the first ten chapters, and we're going to do so for a while. But near the end of the book, we're going to start talking about the second coming of Christ, because that's the culmination of the new covenant. Now, notice this is David Chilton saying this, that we still have more to come. This is the guy that the heretical preterists love to claim that he is a, a heretical preterist like themselves. Well, this book was written before the end of his life. He was obviously an Orthodox preterist when he wrote his commentary on Revelation. And so I have nothing to worry about on that score. Now, John, at the end of Revelation, is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, which is completely opposite. Revelation 22, verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, that, of course, is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. That time is near, not at the end of the world. So it's all right to... Let people know about that because they need to know about it. But the things in the far off future, well, you don't need to worry about that right now because it's not going to affect you. If you recall, Daniel said the same things about sealing up the book. Daniel 12, verse 4, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Now, of course, the end of time was the end of the old covenant. Well, actually, it doesn't say the end of time. It says conceal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end. And the end there was the end of the old covenant age which was basically the establishment, which is basically the events around the first advent of Jesus, which is about a half a millennium ahead of when Daniel was writing. And so God said, seal it up. Gonna have to wait a while. 
That was the time predicted by Daniel when the stone, the mountain, would smash the fourth beast with the mixed toes of the Roman Empire. And so the gospel would spread. Well, that was a while away from Daniel, so God told him to seal it up. Well, if that's what it meant for Daniel, it's logical to assume that that's what's meant here for John, that what was sealed here was for the distant future. One little minor point, Jesus, the angel, says, seal up. John, seal up the things and do not write them. How do you seal up something that you don't write? Well, that's just, seal up means as a metaphor. It means keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody about it. Don't even write it down. It doesn't, obviously, you can't seal up something that you haven't physically written. We go to Revelation 10, verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, that was Jesus, lifted up his right hand to heaven. Now, what does lifted up his right hand mean? It means he's taking a stance for taking an oath. Genesis 4, and to show you, let me tell you this, to show you that oaths were taken with a raised right hand, let's look in the scriptures, Genesis 14, 22 through 23. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, that I will make not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. Deuteronomy 32:40. For I, this is God speaking, I lift up my hand to heaven, and I say I live forever. So God lifts his hand up to heaven to make an oath. Ezekiel 20, verses 5 and 6. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God in the day when I chose Israel, and lifted up my hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God. In that day I lifted up my hand unto them, etc., etc., etc. He's swearing an oath by lifting up a hand. Daniel 12:7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever, that it shall be a time, times and a half, and so forth. So, lifting up your hand means... The man, in Daniel 12:7, the man clothed in linen was probably Jesus, so some people say it's Gabriel, but anyway, it's probably Jesus. The point is, whoever it was, he's holding up his right hand to swear. So in Revelation 10:5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. That's Jesus swearing. And boy, when Jesus swears, it's going to happen. There ain't nothing going to stop it. Now, some people have said this can't be Christ because Jesus wouldn't swear. Somehow that's beneath Jesus' dignity or character to swear. Folks, that is a myth. We can see God swearing oaths throughout the scripture, and we can see Jesus doing the same thing. So let's look at this. This is God swearing oaths first. Genesis 22:16, And said by myself have I, God sworn, saith the Lord. Isaiah 45:23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. <laughs> swear, make an oath. That's God swearing that everybody else is going to swear that he's God. Jeremiah 49, 13, For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation. That's Edom. So I've sworn by myself. Amos 6, 8, The Lord God has sworn by himself, says the Lord God of hosts. I abhor the excellency of Jacob. Therefore I will deliver up the city. So God is swearing there. And Amos, Hebrews 6, 13 through 17, For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee, dot, 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 dot. For men verily swear, for men truly swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end to all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. So, in order, so for God to show that he's never going to change his 
word to his people. He swears by it by an oath. So if God can take an oath, why is it wrong for us to take an oath? Notice in verse 16 of Hebrews 6, for men truly swear by the greater. There you have men swearing, and there's no hint of condemnation of that practice. Now let's look at Jesus swearing. Jesus has already told us twice already that he is a witness by swearing. Well, he's a witness, and witnesses swear. Revelation 1, 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelation 3, 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God or the source of the creation of God. So you see Jesus himself is a witness, and of course witnesses swear. Well, we have Jesus here in Revelation 10:5, standing foot on the land, foot on the sea, and he's swearing to heaven. We go to verse 6, Revelation 10. And Jesus swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. So see, yes, Jesus does take oaths. He will delay no longer. This is another indication that the events were going to happen soon. In other words, John was receiving the revelation in the mid-60s, so in a few years, Jerusalem's going to go down. Revelation 10:7. but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the seventh angel will be the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel would blow the seventh trumpet. Then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Well, what is a mystery? A mystery is defined as something that is formerly concealed, but is now revealed. What mystery was God particularly referring to? Well, he was referring to the one preached to his servants, the prophets, as he says in Revelation 10:7. We see a similar phrase in Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed. So you see, a mystery was something hidden, not made known, hidden, but now it's revealed. Who unto? Revealed to whom? Revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what's been revealed by the prophets and the spirits and the Holy Spirit? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So the mystery that John is talking about here is the establishment of the new covenant, as Bruce Gore says. This is a union of believing Jews and Gentiles in one church without distinction. That's a part of the mystery, as Paul says in Ephesians. Now this mystery, which is the gospel... He says the mystery of God is finished. That means it's completed, it's accomplished. The gospel will be accomplished. The new covenant will be established. The Greek word there, as Bruce Gore says, means that the mystery of God is accomplished. Its intended purpose, its meaning, its end, its consummation, its full realization has come to be. We read in the next chapter, Revelation 11:15, when the angel blew his seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So there's the accomplishment or the end of the seventh seal. It is the establishment of the kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord and Jesus Christ, the former kingdom of the world, and over which Jesus will reign forever and ever. So that's what's going to happen when the seventh angel blows the next chapter. This gospel, this mystery was preached to a servant, the prophet, so the gospel was always in the Old Testament. It was preached. It was finally revealed when the new covenant got here, and the apostles received further revelation. We go now to verses 8, 9, and 10 of Revelation 10. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, 
I heard again speaking with me, and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel. Now remember, this is Jesus now. So I went to the angel, as I, John, went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now again, the little book, as I said earlier, is either the book of Revelation itself, and I think it more probably just the gospel, symbolizes the gospel. And we see the book is open in the hand of the angel Jesus who stands on the sea representing the Gentiles and on the land representing the Jews. So now we have the mystery, which was the union of the Jews and Gentiles in the churches here, emphasized Jesus is over the Gentiles and the Jews now. And John is told by Jesus to eat the little book, make it a part of your being. So now we're going to talk about how the gospel affects John when he eats it. This is a reference back into the Old Testament when Ezekiel was commanded to eat a scroll symbolizing the prophetic denunciation of the rebellious house of Israel. And so now John is going to eat a scroll that's going to symbolize the denunciation of the current day rebellious house of Israel. Let's look what Ezekiel said about his scroll. Ezekiel 2 verses 8, 9, and 10. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. That means on both sides. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Ezekiel 3 verses 1 through 3. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat what you see. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, that's a roll like a scroll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give you. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. So we see the roll in the Ezekiel was eaten, a scroll. It was sweet like honey there. And later on in the chapter of Ezekiel, it was said to be bitter. Or at least it said it produced an angry and bitter spirit in Ezekiel's heart. We read in Ezekiel 3.14, just a few verses later, The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. I left in bitterness and in an angry spirit. All right, so we need to know now why this book was sweet and bitter at the same time. It was sweet in his mouth and bitter by the time it got down to his stomach. Well, that represents, it's actually not a difficult metaphor. It represents the two effects of the gospel. Gospel is sweet when it's preached to those who believe it and received by those who believe it. Redemption is sweet. Salvation is sweet. Eternal life is a wonderful thing. But by golly, if you're going to receive judgment because you refuse the gospel and you don't have your sins forgiven and you're subject to judgment, that's pretty bitter. And so, likewise, we're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem here. That's pretty bitter. The sweet part, when John ate that roll, that would refer to the redemption of the saints, the establishment of the new covenant, which we've been talking about. The bitter part of that role is the destruction of the apostate house of Israel. Here's some bitter things John would have to see. He would have to see the once holy city of Jerusalem leveled to the ground. He would have to see hundreds of thousands of his countrymen starved, tortured, murdered, and sold into slavery. 
that's pretty bitter. John's Jewish, remember, and he might not sympathize with the fake Jewish religion, but by golly, he was still Jewish, and that was still his home. Watch it burnt down to the ground. That's pretty bitter. So just remember, great application here. The gospel is sweet to the saved, but bitter to the lost. We go down to verse 11. We'll finish up Revelation 10. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, I was told there is difficult to translate. Apparently, King James says, he said unto me. Well, that would be Jesus saying unto John. That's okay. But the Holman Christian Study Bible says, they said unto me, which would be what God and Jesus saying to John. I don't know what it would be. And most of the translations just avoid the issue of who was talking to John and it just says I was told it doesn't say by whom he was told it doesn't really matter let's assume it was Jesus John you got to prophesy again my friends about many peoples and nations and languages and kings which is standard phraseology referring to the Gentiles and so this angel Jesus who straddled across the land and the sea he's about to execute judgment on the land judgment on Israel so that the gospel can go out to the sea peoples the Gentiles and this new covenant will encompass the nations of the world, many peoples and nations and languages and kings all over the world, which is exactly what's happened. It's everywhere today. Now, John is told he must prophesy about all these peoples and nations and languages and kings. About, that's the Greek word epi, which Bruce Gore says is hard to translate. He said it can be translated as over. You must again prophesy over many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So about makes the John's prophecy a little bit removed from the people but over makes it a little bit closer to the peoples he's prophesying about that the gospel was spread thereunto the prophecy that's being referred to here by jesus is john must further write the book of revelation so we can find out about what's going to happen to everybody not just the jews but about many peoples and nations and languages and kings we got to bring the roman empire in here pretty soon so that they will be dealt with shortly now we have finished revelation 10 verses 1 through 11 and now I would invite you to tune in to the next audio, which will cover Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14, the two witnesses. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.